Well, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5, <clears throat> verses 17 to 25. As we uh, continue to work our way through the letter and nearer the end. So 1 Timothy 5, uh, 17 through 25. So hear now God's holy word. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, So this is 1 Timothy 5, now 18. For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudice prejudging, do nothing, uh, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Amen. Well, Paul is going through this, in this chapter in particular, really throughout the book, and giving guidelines on how the church ought to be ordered so that everything may function very well. And so in the first half of this chapter, we talked about um, how Timothy should act with older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and this particular section, and and then the care of widows, an extended section on that. And here he begins with uh, how we uh, should uh, conduct ourselves with the elders. How do we properly care for the elders? And here he's not thinking of older people. Here he's thinking, uh, particularly for those who are elders in the church? What is your responsibility toward them? How can you interact with them in a proper way? And there are three broad areas that we'll look at as we go through this. The first is to honor or support uh, the elders, verses 17 and 18. Then there's uh, accusation or how to receive an accusation against an elder in verses 19 to 21, and then uh, the ordination, uh, what process you go through in ordaining someone, and uh, the verses 22 to 25. And especially in this first part, when it talks about honoring and supporting elders and pastors, it seems a little self-serving. If I could do what I would want to do, I would just skip this. But... I need not to just skip it, so y'all will hopefully hear it in the proper way, and I'll say it in the proper way. But it is true that pastors can tend to get, and elders too, get discouraged. Uh, If you Google 
how many ministers leave the ministry every month? There's really a wide variety of answers, but whatever answer you get, it's a lot. Um, this, the lowest answer I got was uh, 250 ministers leave the ministry every month. That's a lot of uh, people leaving that particular calling. Some have really astronomical numbers that just can't be believed. But at any rate, from 40 to 50 percent of ministers at least think about leaving the ministry all the, uh, all the time. So it is helpful for us to think about how we can respond and act toward those in authority over us. That's an important thing. It's told us in other places. <clears throat> so we begin in verse 17 with a general statement. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. And uh, you have this category of those who elders who rule and then those elders who also uh, are involved in the labor of preaching and teaching. We have in our uh, church government, in our church order, uh, two classifications of elders. We have ruling elders, which are, in a sense, I guess you'd say the normal elder in his service to the church. And then you have teaching elders, which are pastors. And uh, we have a an entire form of government, and Ryan took his exam on that on Saturday. Haven't heard if he passed, but I'm sure he did. Uh, but we have a whole book of church order, which is available to you if you want to know all the different directions for how to manage, uh, and for how, to, how elders should manage uh, the church. But here he gives the general exhortation to honor uh, these um, elders who rule well, um, and he's already given us this, the description in First Timothy three, chapter three, of what kind of men should be elected as elders. And there are there's a, a you know a, a serious, somewhat stringent qualification process that usually is taken for for ruling elders and also in particular for. Uh, for teaching elders, for a person who wants to be a pastor, um, there is quite a long process. First, he has to announce that he's interested in ministry, and he becomes classified as someone who's under care of the presbytery. In other words, they're watching over him and helping him along. And then he has to go through another really arduous series of tests and exams uh, on various subjects, English Bible and Greek and Hebrew, and he has to take a theology exam before the presbytery. So he has to stand up and be able to defend what he believes. Uh, and then he's considered licensed to preach. Now you think that would be enough, but it's not enough. If he wants to be a minister, he has to go through more exams and do that theology, theology exam all over again. Uh, before the floor of Presbytery. Uh, Joe Engel calls this a Presbyterian form of hazing. But, uh, and it might seem like that, but, it's, but it, there's a stringent requirements to get there uh, to serve in those offices. And the Bible gives us some direction on that. <clears throat> so there are those who rule well, 
uh, govern the affairs of the church well. And then there are those who uh, give themselves to the work, the labor of preaching and teaching. So there's this specific task that they're given to, that certain elders are given to. Uh, All elders are supposed to be apt to teach, uh, but there are some elders, pastors, who are given the responsibility and devote themselves to preaching and to teaching. And the um, exhortation of Paul here to Timothy is that they are worthy of double honor. Uh, That might mean that it's it's interpreted a couple different ways. Certainly double honor in the sense that they have double the responsibility. They've given themselves to this this work. And uh, there's uh, perhaps could consider a a, a salary increase when you reach ordination. Uh, And so it certainly could involve money, payment, support. But there's other ways for you to support elders and pastors. One is to listen to them. Um, turn to F- Hebrews chapter 13. <clears throat> Hebrews 13, verse 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as though who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So you, you can honor your leaders, your elders, your pastors by listening to them because they have the weighty responsibility of caring for your soul. And um, so pay attention to what they have to say. Don't spurn it. Don't turn it aside. <clears throat> Encourage them. Uh, fellowship with them. There are lots of different ways you can honor them. Uh, beside, but but for someone who's giving their life, uh, there is uh, the opportunity to support them financially as well. And you get a flavor for this. So come back to First Timothy five. You get a flavor for this in verse eighteen, where Paul cites uh, two two other scriptures. One is Deuteronomy 25. He says for the verse 18, for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. In other words, so you should provide your, if you, if your barn animal gets to receive some of the benefit of its labor, then certainly your pastor or elder can receive some of the benefit from their labor. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 25.4, which says that very same thing. Uh, Do not muzzle the ox when he's treading out the grain. So he'd pull the, the, um, um, the grinding wheel and uh, would eat some of the grain along the way as he's doing that. The second quotation is, um, and the laborer deserves his wages. Here he's quoting from Christ. So it's interesting here. This is probably around uh, 60 uh, A.D. So Jesus has been gone about 30 years, roughly. And so the gospel accounts that have been written up to this point, and probably, possibly all four, but three more than likely at least, were already considered scripture. 
That's, in, that's significant for us to think about. So when you hear people criticizing scripture, you need to think, well, no, Paul looked at earlier books written earlier as the Bible. And he quoted it as authoritative scripture. Uh, so turn to uh, it's, uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 7, just to see this. It's also in Matthew uh, 10, verse 10. But <clears throat> just to see this quotation. So Luke 10, verse 7. Uh, and in remain, and remain in the same house. This is where Jesus is instructing his disciples as they go out on this mission. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Uh, and then he says, continues on with his instruction. <clears throat> so it's out of the words of Christ, the mouth of Christ in Matthew 10. It's the same context in the same direction. The laborer is worthy of his hire. Um, let me take you to one other passage and we won't read all of it, just maybe a little piece of it. First Corinthians chapter nine. Here, Paul is trying to defend his ministry. One of the, um, one of the things about the Corinthians is they, along with the Galatians, they didn't think much of Paul and Paul in this case is defending himself Uh, and uh, let's pick it up at verse 3, 1 Corinthians 9, 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Uh, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? And then he goes on to say, but I haven't really used my freedom and opportunity. So... If, if we sow spiritual things, then it's fair or legitimate or expected to, to reap material things. It's not out of order for that. So you have these first two verses talking about the support of the elders, the support of pastors. Then we come to a second section on, well, how do we deal with accusations against the elders, and it's in verses 19 to 21. How do we handle these accusations? Uh, it's easy for all of us to claim to, to complain about those in authority. 
But we have to have an orderly way of processing that. Uh, So in verse 19, he says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And that was required really for all believers. It was required for those for, for that to happen, for that to get a conviction in the court. But here it's, it's coming out as don't even receive an accusation against an elder or against a pastor without two or three witnesses. You have to begin with that. Uh, someone can't just come with a list of complaints and find fault with those in authority and automatically be listened to. Uh, Warren Wiersbe wrote about this situation himself when, in one of his churches he pastored. A church member approached me at a church dinner one evening and began to accuse me of ruining the church. And she had all sorts of miscellaneous bits of gossip, none of which was true. As, as soon as she started her tirade, I asked two of the officers standing nearby to witness what she was saying. Of course, she immediately stopped talking and marched defiantly away. Of course, that's kind of obvious then maybe her complaints weren't as justified as she thought they were. But we have to be careful in uh, receiving an accusation against someone in authority uh, because it's all too easy to do that in our particular form of government There's a warning that's given to anybody who is going to file a charge against someone in authority. And the warning is you need to be careful because uh, what you're, the the sentence that you're accusing, desiring in your accusation might come back on you. So you have to be very careful in what you're doing. But that doesn't mean elders or pastors aren't accountable. They are accountable. Certainly they're accountable to God, but they are accountable to the church. And if an elder has uh, transgressed, done something wrong, done done something illegal or um, in in an improper way, uh, he needs to be confronted. And there's a whole process for doing that. And it's it's proper to do it, uh, but we have to do it in the right way. Um, the uh, offense should not be hushed up. But like for an elder, like for a person, like for an individual, you always begin following the pattern Jesus taught us in Matthew 18. When a brother's caught in a sin, what do you do first? You go and talk to them. And you try to persuade him of his fault. And then if he won't listen to you, what do you do next? Well, you get someone else to go with you. So in the case of an an elder, you would probably get another elder to go with you to talk to him about that. And you try, the two of you try to convince uh, them of their wrong. And then... If they won't hear the two of you, then you take them to the elders as a group. And if they won't hear the elders as a group, then you put them out of the church. So you don't immediately going, you don't immediately go to publicly uh, rebuking a person. 
whether an individual or an elder, uh, you always begin with the individual step. And the at least one exception I would make to that is if a woman had an objection uh, toward an officer, it would be appropriate for her to take her husband or another man with her. So you would begin, so that would be an appropriate, I think, exception. But essentially, though, you go to the person privately and try to deal with it. But verse 20 says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So that's when it's gotten to the point where there's no remedy and it needs to be publicly addressed. A public offense needs to be addressed publicly. A person needs to be rebuked. Uh, If they won't uh, ask for forgiveness for their sin, if they won't turn away from their sin, and they're rebuked in the presence of all so that all may stand in fear, so that we all uh, take stock of our lives. It's why when there is an excommunication, it's done, it's announced publicly, uh, in part uh, because the whole congregation needs to be warned to take their sin seriously and deal with it when it's small uh, before it reaches that point. And Timothy, we see in a lot of different ways, was probably a timid person. And he was a young man, and maybe he's dealing with an older man, and he's told to deal with an older man as a father. And it would have been very easy for Timothy, it's very easy for any of us, to be kind of reluctant to pursue this thing. Uh, And um, it's understandable And so what Paul gives him in verse 21 is instruction to don't give in to that timidity, that fear. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So he's telling Timothy, you got to persevere. You got you got to do what's right, even if it's hard. Um, even if there's challenges to it. And Timothy's the pastor of the church. So he needs to follow up on careful order. So persevere in these things, Timothy. And to encourage him to do that, he gives him this uh, statement that you're you're doing your labors in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ Jesus, and in the presence of the elect angels. So you have all these observers watching what you're doing uh, so that you want to guard yourself uh, against wrongdoing yourself and persevere in doing what is right. Uh, that kind of thought is, it's, it's in Paul elsewhere, and it's in 2 Timothy 4 verse 1. <clears throat> He'll use the same formula here when he's exhorting Timothy in preaching. He says, I, in 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is, the, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, 
preach the word, and then he continues on with that command. So this is really good advice for all of us, not just for those in authority, or not just if you're trying to deal with something. Um, There's a lot of times when we may do wrong because we think nobody will see this. Well, that often isn't the case. It'll, if you ever put anything on the internet, you know everyone will know um, sooner or later. It, says, it doesn't mean you think no one's going to see you or no one's going to know. But that's not always the case. It's not always true. But even if that were the case, that no human being knows, the fact is God knows. He sees and uh, he watches And so we need to always live our lives knowing that we're in the presence of God. That it might motivate us to honor him uh, even in secret. And then he he tells them, so keep these rules uh, and don't be impartial. Uh, Don't prejudge the situation. Don't be impartial. John Chrysostom, who was an early church father and preacher, comments about this. He says, for as it is wrong to condemn hastily and rashly, so not to punish manifest offenses is to open the way to others and embolden them to offend. For it is, it is a much greater scandal that the offense should be known and not punished For as when sinners go unpunished, many commit crimes. So when they are punished, many are made better. So it's not a good thing when when things are rushed over. Sometimes that can happen in a church because we like the person. We don't really want to have an offense and we don't say anything when we should. Uh, Philip Ryken says, when it comes to church discipline, Timothy must be even-handed. He must handle each case without prejudice, being careful not to entertain an unfair accusation, even if he thinks it might be true. On the other hand, he must not sweep things under the rug just because the man accused is a fellow elder. Ministers may not play favorites. An accusation against an elder must be judged solely on the merits of the case. And then Calvin, on the same thought, said, um, there is nothing harder than to pronounce judgment with complete impartiality so as to avoid showing undue favor or giving rise to suspicions or being influenced by unfavorable reports or being excessively strict and in every case to consider nothing but the matter in hand. So we have to follow this, but do so in a proper way. Now I'm kind of going long, so let me move faster. The third section is on essentially the ordination of elders, the process of <clears throat> selecting those uh, to, um, to authority. And so he says in verse 22, don't, don't be hasty in laying on the hand, lay, in laying on hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So we don't want to be hasty in our judgments. The reason for the the diligent process toward becoming an officer or as a pastor is so that the person would be qualified for the office and 
if you don't know much about him in in chapter three, verse six, we're told don't elect an elder as a don't elect a novice as an elder. If you don't know the person well, if you haven't seen them under fire, if you haven't seen them serve faithfully, you may not know their character fully. And so it's good to give time. Uh, see a person serve, see a person willingness to, um, to give themselves to the Lord. Don't be hasty in laying on hands and keep yourselves pure. Now that is going to be probably, probably connected with verses 24 and 25, but Paul sort of, it almost seems like this it breaks in with a little personal advice for Timothy. Seems like he's <clears throat> changing the subject in total, totally. And some of your translations will have this in parenthesis uh, where he says to Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine <clears throat> for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. There's a couple ways to look at this. Of course, uh, the fact that Timothy was sickly and probably in the Middle East at that time, water was contaminated. Uh, if you've ever going to travel in Mexico, you're probably going to get the warning many times, don't drink the water because it has impurities in it that will affect you that may not affect the locals in the community. But at any rate, uh, Timothy apparently had some ailments and uh, the water wasn't helpful to him. He was neglecting his health. And um, so Paul gives him that advice. We'll use a little wine uh, for you teetotalers. You can take comfort in the fact that he says, just use a little wine, not a lot of wine. But it was so that he would drink something that was pure and helpful for his health. Another way to look at this text, Paul had just said, keep yourself pure. And it's possible some think that Timothy may have had a little bit of issue with some uh, latent asceticism. In other words, he denied himself things um, as a way of trying to seem more spiritual or be more spiritual and that Paul was correcting him. Now, don't uh, forget to give thanks to God and you, ha- you need to drink a little wine in thankfulness to the Lord to help you in your health. But he moves on in verses 24 and 25, and I think keep yourself pure comes connected to this. If you lay on hands on a man too quickly and he turns out to be unworthy of the calling... Uh, What he's saying is you're uh, sharing in his failures because you didn't do your job in uh, examining him uh, to begin with. So to avoid a scandal, you need to be careful on who you ordain. So in 24 and 25, there's a, let me just say 24 first. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. And that's the thing he's warning about. If you ordain a person too quickly, uh, the sins that they, some sins they commit are obvious and everybody can see them. But some sins they commit are under the radar. And uh, they won't appear until later, after they've been serving, uh, after they're in, in responsibility, in the role. And so... 
it's not immediately evident the, the faults in their character. And so that's partly why to go back to don't lay hands on a man quickly. Uh, because you may share in his um, sinfulness or his evil actions because you didn't take the time to examine him carefully. Now, no one's perfect, and a man can uh, fall into sin later on, uh, but we need to do our work ahead of time uh, before someone's ordained or elected to the office of elder. And then the second verse is the positive parallel to that statement in verse 24. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. And I think this is a reminder, kind of in contrast to what's in verse 24, is that you and I do our good deeds not to be seen by men or not to be praised by men. Uh, We do our good deeds before men that they might see them and glorify our Father who is in heaven, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. But we don't do our good deeds for men to praise us. And so we do our deeds in secret. First, or Matthew 6, and I won't have us turn there, but in the instruction around the Lord's Prayer, the... um, Jesus says, when you give your gifts to the poor, don't give it announcing it uh, that that you're giving those gifts, but give it in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when will that be rewarded openly? Well, we don't know for sure, maybe never in this life, but when we appear before the Lord, as Matthew 25 spells out, the Lord Jesus Christ will welcome us and honor us for the service we gave to the Lord. So our service, our good deeds won't remain hidden, not to the Father. He will see them and he will reward us and bless us. So that's the positive encouragement in contrast to the warning that the sins of some people are obvious, but even the ones that are hidden will ultimately be made known. So how do we order the church well so that it functions well? We honor the elders in the proper way. We um, yet hold our elders accountable to serve the Lord as they should. And then we join with the elders in not uh, laying hands on someone too quickly but let them serve and then be placed in authority. And it's also that God's church might be ordered well and we would experience the blessings of his grace and peace. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this instruction. Help us as we read it to reflect on it for our own edification as well as the order of the church. And may you... um, Help us to to help our elders to rule and to govern the church well so that we would uh, follow the paths we should. Help each of us as members of the church to serve you and to honor you in the way we conduct ourselves and interact with those in authority. And we pray, O Father, that you would 
govern your church so that the blessings that you have for her would be poured out richly upon us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.